so today we're, we're continuing our series on, um, on Philippians, uh, moving our way through Philippians. And today we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 3, um, the whole chapter, and then the first verse of chapter 4. So if you wouldn't mind, um, as you turn there, if you wouldn't mind standing up as, as I read the word of God for us, if you could read along with me. Philippians 3 says, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have, a, have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I long love and long for my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. This is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. So I'm, I'm a big sports fan. Um, pretty much any sport I, I am at least down to, to watch, to, um, to keep up on a little bit. Um, but, but in the sports world, there, there's this ongoing conversation uh, of who the GOAT is in each sport, right? Who is the greatest of all time? And I find this even more so when it comes to basketball, um, there are many who rightly claim that Michael Jordan is the greatest player to ever, ever play the game, all right? But there are those who will bring um, someone like Kobe Bryant into the conversation, and, and there's validity there, all right? 
There is maybe the older generation who will throw out names like Bill Russell or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, right, who have amazing championship pedigrees, more championships than any other players, right? But then there, there are others, especially younger generation, who might throw out a name like LeBron James, especially if you're from Cleveland, right? Um, or, or maybe Kevin Durant or Steph Curry, guys who are actively playing now, right, and, and continuing their legacy. And as you can tell, I mean, listen, New Community is not a sports-heavy church. I learned this over the years as I have, have been here. But even in that, we're hearing arguments, right? I'm hearing more, more vocal responses than any other sermon I have preached here already, right? And I don't think that is just a reflection on my preaching, right? There, there is passion when it comes to these conversations. Then people begin to throw out all these stats of, like, who has the most championships and, and who's won the most MVP trophies, who's the high, who has the highest scoring average. All these different stats come out. People become, be, begin to compare one player to another in their argument, right? But the problem is, This argument will never be settled. I don't care how right you think you are. There's always some counter argument. There's always some stat. There's always a new player who emerges, right? There's different rules that affect how the game is played. So stats look different from era to era. Competition gets, gets graded on a curve, right? So there's never a clear and concise winner in these conversations. Everybody throws out their favorite stat, their favorite player, and feels like they won the argument from their perspective, right? In Paul's world, this debate may have been going on because the, you know, the ancient Olympics have been around for a couple centuries already. Um, so they might have had similar debates. But, but in Paul's day, in the religious world, there were similar conversations. Maybe not who's the greatest of all time. But, but they would flaunt their religious piety in very visible ways to one another, especially in the Jewish community. Right? It was very obvious from a physical standpoint to tell who was following the law of Moses and who wasn't. It was very obvious to look at somebody and tell to a certain degree how much they were following their religion. And so it could be very tempting to feed into that in Paul's day. Very tempting to be like, look at me, look at what I do. I follow God. Right? These are clear indications. You can tell how much I love God just look, right? But Paul knew that the kingdom of God pushed against an outward signs of righteousness, any outward signs of accomplishment in following God, but yet focused on the inward transformation that changes us into people who, as Mr. Jared talked about earlier, people who love God and love our neighbors well, right? This is what the gospel did. This is what the transformation of Jesus Christ brings to our lives. And so, In Philippians 3, we find Paul emphasizing that the Philippians could confidently pursue God's righteousness if they knew the resurrected Christ. But one of the problems with pumping up our accomplishments or or our own version of our righteousness is that it eventually becomes a burden to us. It leads to bondage in our lives because when when we define ourselves by our, our accomplishments, we are then forced to continue to live up to those. Right? If all of a sudden, um, I'm going to pick on LeBron because I have my friend from Cleveland here. Right? As LeBron gets a little older, eventually his, his stats begin to fall off. All of a sudden, right? And he wins no more championships. All of a sudden, the conversation is like, well, maybe he could have been the greatest, but look what happened at the end. Right? He fell off. Right? And so we become defined by our accomplishments when that is our measurement of, of our worth. 
Right? We are held hostage to, to these achievements. We have to continually perform to prove our worth and our value. And as someone who grew up feeling the, um, the weights and also the failure of living up to the expectations of others, I want to encourage you today that the resurrected Christ, knowing the resurrected Christ frees us to abandon our self-righteousness and to pursue God's righteousness. So today, there are two actions I want us to explore together, to abandon and to pursue. And we're going to look at how knowing the resurrected Christ frees us to do both of these things. But first, what does it mean to know Christ? Right? Because knowing the resurrected Christ is foundational to our freedom. I unintentionally asked this uh, to my kids. Um, they, I think it was Jayla, walked in the room while I was studying. I just said it out loud. I was like, what does it mean to know Christ? And she began rattling off this answer um, of, you know, it means to, to know who Jesus is, to believe in him as our Savior, that he died and, and he rose again for us, right? And that's what it means. This word knowing, this Greek word, has the idea of, of a deep, advanced knowledge of something. So here in this context, it, it's a deep, advanced knowledge of who Jesus is. It's the difference between saying, I know all of these stats about Michael Jordan, or being able to say, I actually know Michael Jordan. Like, he's a friend of mine, right? Because I can know a lot about all these famous people, but I don't know any of them. But I do know Jesus, and that means that I know who he is, not just what he's done, but I know what he's done for me, and I believe in who he has said he is, and I trust in him that because he died and he rose again, I am now freed from my sins and freed from death. That's what knowing Christ is. It represents the saving knowledge of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Jesus said it himself when he's praying to God the Father in John 17. He said, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So eternal life, salvation, is knowing Christ, is knowing God. But why is it important to know the resurrected Christ? Paul talks a a few times in, in... Um, in chapter 3, about the power of the resurrection. So why is it important to know the resurrected Christ? See, Christ's death has brought us freedom from sin and death, but his resurrection has given us new life. In in Romans chapter 6, Paul breaks down using the illustration of baptism. He says that that we have been crucified with Christ, crucified to our sins. Our, Our sins and death no longer hold us in bondage. We have been baptized with him. And we have been raised, just as he has been raised, to new life. We have been granted new life through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, this, this has a twofold meaning. One, we have a future new life, an eternal life, when we are united with God in heaven in our perfected state, living with him forever. Right? That is a future life that God will give us. But this new life is not just a future It is that, but it's not only that. This new life is also a new way to live out our lives here on earth. It is a life of righteousness following the example of Jesus Christ here that God has has raised us to live. We're going to look at that a little bit later. But understanding that, that through the saving knowledge of the resurrected Christ, we find our freedom. As well, knowing then this resurrected Christ, what does it free us to? Knowing the resurrected Christ frees us to confidently abandon our self-righteousness. Right, so what is self-righteousness? Self-righteousness is, is anything we use 
to justify ourselves before God. Anything we use to say that we earned what God has meant to give us. We earn God's love. We earn God's favor. We earn God's salvation because of what I have done. Right? We, we use these things to justify us and say that we're good now. I'm okay. I got it. So here in chapter 3, um, Paul starts out in verse 2. He, he, he names, he refers to these people as, as dogs, as evildoers, as mutilators of the flesh, right? These, these are adjectives and names that I would not be, want used of me, right? Dogs, the, the word dogs here is, is like one of the worst insults in, in that language that, that you could use, right? Um, mutilators of the flesh is never good, right? Um, and just evildoers, just people who do pure evil, right? This is who Paul is talking about. Um, so he is coming from the context that, that within the Jewish Christian faith. There were Jewish believers who were now adding extra requirements to these non-Jews who were accepting Christ as their Savior, right? They, as the Gentile believers came into the church, the Jewish Christians were like, okay, that's cool, but now you got to go get circumcised just like us. Now you have to follow the law of Moses just like us. Otherwise, you're not really saved, right? So they took the cross of Christ and began adding all these things on top of it extra requirements to earn this salvation. And Paul knew this was so anti-gospel that he goes to this extent to call them dogs, evildoers, and mutilators of the flesh, right? Because he knew that all self-righteousness denies our need for a savior and ultimately only ends in destruction. In verse 19, Paul says that those who focus on these earthly things, those who focus on self-righteousness, their destiny is destruction. There is no hope for them. In Matthew 6, Jesus um, hit, hits on a, a, a similar notion when he, he, the term he uses is hypocrites, right? He's talking specifically about the, the Pharisees and other spiritual leaders of the day. But he calls out these hypocrites and he says, when, when you, you give to the needy, you pray you fast, all good things. But he says, you do them in the sight of other people. You do them so that other people will know that you are holy and righteous. So Jesus labels them as hypocrites, and he says, they have received their reward in full. In other words, you have nothing else coming to you but the praise of the people that are around you. That is all you get. There's nothing else coming your way. Right? Again, self-righteousness denies our need for Jesus. And it only ends in bondage and destruction. And Paul knew what, of course, Jesus knew about himself, is that knowing the resurrected Christ shows us that Jesus is more valuable. Right? Because let's be honest, it feels good to, be, to have the praise of people. It feels good to know that people think I'm a good person or that I do good things or that I have some kind of platform or position that people aspire to or admire. Can we be honest and, and say that feels good? Or is that just me? I know it's hot. It's a little warm in here. But that feels good. feels good to have people come and be like, man, I see you doing all this great. Th- man, you are amazing. I like that. But if that's my priority, that's all I get. But knowing the resurrected Christ shows us that Jesus is more valuable than all of that. In verses 4 through 7 here in Philippians 3, 
Paul lays out his spiritual resume, right? He lays out, he, he acknowledges that, yes, all these, these Judaizers who are trying to heap on extra things, I am circumcised, right, in case you didn't know. I am, a, a, I am from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm from, you know, an elite and sought-after tribe. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. I have all of my, my, um, my ethnic backing, the ethnic pedigree that anybody else who's Jewish wants, right? And not only that, but I've had the privilege of being religiously trained to the point that I'm a Pharisee, right? I have that education. I have that training. I have that background. And not only that, but man, you want to talk about being zealous. I killed folks who weren't Jewish, right? I went that far to prove that I loved my God. And if you want to bring out the law that we're all supposed to hold that nobody actually can hold correctly, I'm faultless. I'm blameless. Paul lays this whole thing out. And in doing so, he, he's acknowledging that he has the religious and ethnic pedigree that others want. He has the privilege and the accomplishments that everybody is trying to attain. He said, I have all that. But that means nothing to me. All of that that you consider gain, you consider positives, I consider loss compared to knowing Jesus Christ. Now, that makes sense intellectually. It makes sense theologically. But in practice, that's extremely hard. But Paul knew that knowing Christ and receiving the salvation that comes along with that is better than any earthly gain I can imagine. Think about that. Think about all the things on this earth that you could gain for yourself. Any praise from other people, any position of power, any amount of wealth, anything that could come your way on this earth And Paul is saying all of that is actually a loss compared to knowing Christ. All of that is actually garbage, refuse, waste, worthless compared to just knowing Jesus Christ. See, what did Paul know here? Paul uses this phrase, riches of Christ, over and over in his letters. And these riches are described as being glorious, immeasurable, unsearchable, like the the depths of of these riches of Christ that can never be understood. And he uses this phrase to describe God's grace and his glory and his kindness and his mercy and his understanding and his wisdom. So he's he's saying all of these things that are true about God that we can never understand, never reach the bottom of, never fully discover this side of heaven is so much more valuable than any amount of wealth, power, prestige, and recognition on this earth. It echoes what the psalmist said in Psalm 34 when he said, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man or the one who takes refuge or trust in him. Our God and the knowledge of him is so much more valuable than anything here on this earth. If that is true, how then do we actually give in to self-righteousness? Right? How do we see that creep into our lives? Because I, I will almost guarantee none of us are going out of the street corners and proclaiming all the good things that we've done. Right? We don't walk into church on a Sunday morning and be like, man, did you see me at the fun fair yesterday? I was serving everywhere. Right? I was all over that place. I was helping this person, that person. I was encouraging people. Man, I was the first one there, the last one to leave. No, none of us, I don't think, do that. Right? I mean, that's... For me, that's what comes to mind when I think of self-righteousness. But that's not what we struggle with, right? Most of us know that we're supposed to be humble, even if we don't feel it on the inside. We know that we can't outwardly do that. 
So how do we struggle with self-righteousness? I see this in a few ways. One, some of us have a spiritual resume like Paul. Right? Some of us have been raised in church. We've been raised by Christian parents. We've learned from a very young age what it means to follow after Christ. We've been doing this, this faith life for a long time. Some of us have gotten the, the, um, the education and the training to be able to, um, to understand God's word, to teach God's word, to, to serve other people, right? We, we have all of this. Some of us have, um, we, we, we like to know that we came from the right church background, whatever that means to you, right? But we didn't come from a background of, of like heresy and, and craziness. I mean, I was raised in a good church, right? They, they preached the Bible. Some of us have some past ministry involvement that makes us still feel pretty good today, right? Because we were doing amazing things back then, and that still feels good right now, right? So we, we have all of these things in our background. And, and let me be very clear. None of that is bad. None of Paul's list is wrong other than, like, persecuting the church. That one was wrong, right? But all the other stuff, he was following God as he knew him to be until he met Christ, Right? None of those things are wrong. None of the things I just named are wrong. But the, the, the struggle is, is that when it leads to us beginning to look down on others, when it leads us to, to look around and say, well, you're not quite at my level, right? You're good. God has saved you. You're a Christian. Cool. But you're not quite where I'm at. Or the other temptation is when we begin, we, we feed into that. But this can be anybody, anywhere, I think. doesn't matter your spiritual background. But when we begin to look down on other churches or under other individuals because they're not like me. Now, I love New Community Covenant Church. I love who we are. I love our DNA. I love our values. I love how we, we live those out. But we are not perfect. But the temptation can be, when, when we are a part of a church that we absolutely love, the temptation can be to look at other churches like, you guys are cool, but you don't quite have it all together, right? You should come check out my church. And especially in a church, in, in this time in our society, a church who deals, uh, who is multicultural, who, who talks openly about how the gospel um, deals with race and justice and, and community and all these different things, it can be very, very tempting to look at other churches and be like, y'all need to get it together. I don't even know if you know the gospel. Or, or we can do that with individuals. Like we, we, we hear somebody claim to be a Christian and we're like, really? You? I don't, think it, I don't think we understand things the same way here. Right now, let me be very clear. This does not mean that we don't call out sin when we see sin. This doesn't mean that we let things slide if they don't line up with the Bible. Right? Because there are churches, there are individuals, obviously, who claim to be Christians that are openly teaching, living ways contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is when, when people don't look or live out their faith in the exact way that we do, it can cause us to feel like, like we have things all together and nobody else does it quite like us, right? We take pride in our church. We take pride in how we live out the gospel here. The other way that, that I see self-righteousness come into the church and, and, man, look, come into my life, this is where I struggle the most, is feeling or acting like I've arrived spiritually, like I don't need help from anybody else. And I think the longer you follow Christ, this temptation grows and grows. Because I can feel like, man, I, I know what it means to follow Christ. I've been doing this a long time. I've been teaching other people what it means. The temptation can be, even though I would never say it out loud because I know that's wrong theologically, 
but I live my life like I don't need other people to continue to disciple me. The temptation is to, to realize that I'm okay spiritually where I'm at. I'm good. I'm cool right here. And I don't need others. I can now be used to disciple everybody else, but I don't need anybody to disciple me anymore. And that's wrong. That's contrary to the gospel. All of these things are exacerbated also by times of trouble. Because when trouble comes our way, we're quick to be like, God, I do all this. I've been doing all these things. Look at me. The temptation, like, like somebody like Job could be like, man, God, I've been righteous. But why is all this stuff happening? I deserve fill in the blank. That's self-righteousness. When we, when we build up all these things that we've done and say, I deserve better than this. Instead of rejoicing with the grace that God has shown us. Now, how do we abandon self-righteousness? One is we rest in that grace. We understand and we rest in the grace that God has shown us. Knowing that, that grace is not just for our initial first moment of salvation, but it is for our entire lives. That just like we didn't earn our salvation based on who we are and what we've done, we don't earn our sanctification or our perfection based on who we are or what we've been doing. Right? It is the grace of God at work in our lives. Secondly, we focus on the needs of others, not on our own achievements. Philippians 2, um, Paul reminds the, the Philippians to not um, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than ourselves. Each of us should look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. Focusing on the needs of other people means I'm not looking at myself anymore. The focus is not on me. It's on you. It's, around, it's on those who are around me. Next is we need to boast in the goodness of God, in the goodness of Christ. Practice celebrating what God has done. Emphasize the, that God is doing the work in and through you. It is okay to recognize the good things that other people are doing. It is right. But the praise should always go to God. If somebody comes up and be like, man, I, I appreciate what you've been doing. I see it. I love it. That's okay. You can receive that. But then you can also be like, I'm so thankful God is allowing me to do that. I'm so thankful the Holy Spirit is working in a way that empowers me to do this. Right? We acknowledge that God is the one at work, not us. And lastly, we, we recognize our continued need for Christ. This goes along with the grace of God. But in, in Philippians chapter 2 as well, Paul says that, that the Philippians are supposed to continue to work out their own salvation, right? None of us have arrived. None of us are perfected yet. We continue to work out our salvation. We compare ourselves with Christ, not one another. Because we can all look around a room and find somebody that makes us feel good about ourselves, right? If we're honest. We can find somebody in here and be like, well, I might have it a little bit more together than they do. In whatever terms we, we define that as. But our comparison is with Christ, not each other. Because when we know Christ and the power of his resurrection, we are then free to abandon all of this self-righteousness. But knowing the resurrected Christ also frees us to pursue God's righteousness. God has made us right with himself through knowing Christ. 2 Corinthians um, 5 says, and we sang it earlier, it said, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Let me be clear. God has made us righteous, period. 
When God looks at you and me, if you believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God looks at you and he doesn't see your sin. He sees the broken body and blood of Jesus Christ over you. He sees righteousness. Even though I continue to sin today, God sees righteousness when he looks at me. And this is the source of our confidence in life. Because our righteousness is given to us by God. I can do nothing over my lack of righteousness to lose this righteousness. Because I have become the righteousness of God. I am righteous, period, in God's eyes. But there's also an aspect of God's righteousness that that must still be pursued. And, And Paul knew this. In verse 12, he said, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on. Right? Again, if anybody could claim that they've arrived, it's probably Paul. Yes, he had a sinful past, but at this point, he'd be like, look, I'm, I'm doing okay here. But Paul said, I press on. It's this, it's this Greek word that means like to chase after something, to continue chasing until you've reached this goal. There's two aspects of righteousness here. There's this justification, which happens in our belief in Jesus Christ, where God has removed, he's forgiven our sins, removed them from us, and declared us righteous. But then there's sanctification, which is this ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to conform us to the image of God. It's this continual work that will happen for the rest of our lives until we reach eternity, that God is, is through the Holy Spirit's working, is, is conforming us to his will, conforming us to his image, conforming us to Jesus Christ. Now, this is hard because we know that we won't arrive until heaven. We know that we won't be perfect until God makes us perfect with him in heaven forever. So why do we pursue righteousness when we know that we won't fully attain it here on this earth? We pursue the righteousness of God because that is who we are now. That is our nature as believers. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul writes that that we have been made new creations, right? The old is gone, the new has come as believers in Jesus Christ. We have been given this new life, this new creation, so that we now can pursue God's righteousness. Before Christ, it was unattainable. We can't become righteous on our own, but now that we know Christ, this resurrected Christ, now we have the freedom and the ability to pursue the righteousness of God because we are the righteousness of God. We are able to do this because God has made us his own. I love the way the, the English Standard Version translates verse 12 here in Philippians 3. It says, not that I've already obtained this, this perfected righteousness, or I am perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. We have been made Jesus Christ's own. We are his. He is ours. So we pursue righteousness. Now, how do we do this quickly as we close? One, we learn righteousness from God's word. Second Corinthians, or Second Timothy 3, all scriptures God breathed useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. We learn God's righteousness from his word. Next is that we, we follow godly examples. Here and in other passages, Paul identifies himself as an example to be followed. Other, other scriptures says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Here he says, look, I'm an example to you. Follow me, but also follow others who model it just like we do. In your lives, look around, find godly Christians, find people that you look at and be like, that's what it means to follow Christ. And follow their example. Learn from their behavior. Next and last, and, and how do we pursue righteousness? 
We do this within community. 2 Timothy 2 says, flee the evil desires of youth, so turn from unrighteousness and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. As iron sharpens iron, we encourage one another to pursue the righteousness of God because knowing Christ has made us righteous, he also frees us to continue to pursue God's righteousness. Our society is built on what you have and what you have done. Our worth is constantly tied to our net worth and our accomplishments. That is how we have been raised. This is what our society teaches us. And and it's so easy to view ourselves in this way. But because our citizenship is in heaven and not in this earth, we operate under a different economy. Right? Our, Our worth is rooted in the fact that God made us and God loves us. Our boasting comes not in what we have done, but what God has done in and through us. Knowing Christ is the foundation to all of this. This experiential, intimate knowledge of who Christ is, of of this resurrected Savior, is what grants us the righteousness of God and makes us citizens of heaven. Knowing Christ frees us from the burden of having to prove ourselves to others. Knowing Christ frees us from the worry of feeling like we don't measure up to expectations. Knowing Christ frees us from the low self-esteem that comes from comparing ourselves with others. Knowing Christ frees us from the fear that tells us we have to hold on to our power, our privilege, and our pedigrees. Knowing Christ frees us from the despair of feeling unloved and worthless. Knowing the resurrected Christ frees us to confidently abandon our self-righteousness and pursue the righteousness of God in our lives. Knowing Christ frees us. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for his death, his resurrection, and the righteousness that we can have through him. Father, I pray that you would empower us through the Holy Spirit to be able to leave behind anything that we cling to that feels like it gives us a leg up on everybody else. That we would put to the side anything that makes us feel good about ourselves that is apart from you. Anything that we cling to and say, this is why God loves me or this is why God uses me because I've done all of this. God, our background, our education, our paychecks, where we live, where we come from, what we look like, what church we go to, all of these things. God, I pray that you would help us to put to the side for the sake of knowing you that we would only cling to you as our righteousness. Father God, help us to abandon our self-righteousness and to continue to pursue your righteousness until we're united with you forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.